0: A Pulp MX Network production.
1: Welcome to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show
0: presented by Maxis Tires and Alpine Stars Protects on RacerXOnline.com.
1: With your continued support of our sponsors, we have surpassed 1,000 podcasts delivered with over 7 million downloads. Click that Amazon banner on Pulp MX to help us out. And donate via Patreon if it suits you. And as always, enrich your moto lifestyle by working with the sponsors who support us. Hearing, yeah, the,
2: the, seeing, yeah, the Original Moto Featuring legends
0: of the past, stars of today, season previews, and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis.
1: Welcome to the Creators Podcast Series. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. Interesting guys that have created these amazing companies from scratch or or from families, uh, whatever it is, that uh, we've used them, we've uh, talked to them, we've seen them sponsor riders over the years, and uh, real interesting people and stories behind how these companies got started and how these ideas came to these great people the creators as it were and uh much more i really find this kind of stuff interesting so i hope you've been enjoying this whole series this one is with ross maeda from enzo racing uh it's uh, one of my oldest ones i've done love ross a real smart guy real clever guy and and you know how you know he's smart because sometimes he just says yeah i don't know when you're not that smart i find but you want to show everyone you are You just come up with answers, even if you aren't sure. But when you know you're smart and you don't know something, it's okay to say. You don't know. And Ross is one of those guys that says, I don't know. Uh, I've been testing with Ross over the years with many guys from uh, Nick Way to Tim Ferry to I think I did something with Corey Keeney, maybe, back in the day. I don't know. But I've known Ross for a long time. Of course, his brother Don runs Transworld, and uh, Ross is a great guy, full of stories. He's been around a long time, and I love to talk to Ross Maeda. And here's my first podcast with him. I think I did three, but here's the first one sort of goes behind the history of Ross Maeda, KYB, starting Enzo, and everything else. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the BTO BTOsports.com Transworld Motocross Podcast Show. As usual, I'm your host, Steve Mathis, and this is truly an honor for me to have this man on the phone, and that would be none other than KYB slash Enzo Racing's Ross Maeda. Uh, Ross, uh, thank you for doing the show. No problem. Um, always, uh, always one of my favorite guys to talk to in the pits. Always happy. Never a bad word about anybody, and uh, pretty much the opposite of me. So, yeah. I, I <laughs> I appreciate you doing it. Uh, I guess let's let's talk. First of all, let, let, let's uh, get something. Let's go right into the uh, into your accident that uh, uh, has left you in a wheelchair. How's it going? How are you coping? How's everything going on that end?
0: Um, I'm right now uh, doing a lot of training and therapy, mm-hmm. uh, kind of concentrating on trying to. Uh, make a recovery uh, because, you know, with any spinal cord injury, they don't know very much about what can mm-hmm. happen. They just have to wait and see what, what goes on. But basically I'm a I, uh, I dislocated my, I broke my back at T11 and 12 and uh, stretched the spinal cord. I didn't tear it or bruises or anything. It's just stretched and uh, I have uh, no feeling or muscle control below my waist, my uh, belt line. Mm-hmm. Um, when that first happened, uh, I didn't have any feeling or control right at uh, like where your pants and and uh Within two, three months, uh, I moved down, and I gained uh, uh, feeling and muscle control down in my lower abs mm-hmm. and in part of my hips, and they did some, um, I don't know what they call it, but some kind of feeling test uh, where they prick you with a pen at right. different levels, and at the beginning, they said I was like T11, and after, I want to say three or four months, they said I was then L1, which was three vertebrae down, Mm -hmm. uh, where I was functioning. So, um, I continue to get different things, uh, Returning uh, feeling and just internal things like internal muscles starting to work again, so i'm I'm staying upbeat, mm-hmm. and um, I feel okay you know i, I like I said i I kind of the more I get active, I start going into work more and doing mm-hmm. stuff, and then I start to lose uh, focus on concentrating on my recovery, so right. I, I try to just uh, you know schedule my week around. Putting that first, and then work or whatever else I do second.
1: Right, right. Uh, do you remember how you crashed? I know you uh, you told me um, that, you were, that you were out, but what did they tell you yeah, you did?
0: Well, it was I was riding at Star West, which is kind of a mild supercross track, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a whoop section that um, I was jumping into, and it really wasn't. I didn't consider it that dangerous, but that's apparently where I crashed. <laughs> and um, I have a kind of a memory that's almost like a dream of just going into it and and the bike bogging or something, and, and I crashed. But that's almost just like a dream. Uh, what they did find was that when they got to my bike, uh, the front wheel had, had uh broken a bunch of spokes but they were looking at they weren't sure if that was something that occurred right at you know, that caused the crash or the bike did big flips and came down on the front wheel and 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 uh, Mm -hmm. uh, collapsed the wheel because it it had tore the oak nipples out and that's generally something that's a real severe hit. That's not something I could have done just riding. You know, I think it it might might have been doing big flips in the air and came down on the wheel and done it. But, you know, it's it's not something that I'm losing sleep over, and it's just right. it happened And it's a risk that I took, and yeah. I can accept that.
1: Yeah, you're. Uh, a lot of people may not know, but uh, I mean, you're in your 50s, and and you ride a lot. You're uh, <laughs> sorry, you ride well, you rode a lot. You and... know,
0: it was always. You know, it was like I when I uh, I was racing from when I was. Uh, I started racing when I was like. Um, 12 years old and continued racing well into my 30s and 40s but uh i rather even more so than racing i've always really enjoyed riding Mm -hmm. and uh testing and just trying different stuff but i really 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 enjoyed riding motocross and i remember um People used to get into the industry and then they, they quit riding because, you know, they're going, oh, I can't stand to look at a dirt bike anymore. But I, I always said there's no sense in being in this stupid industry if you don't ride. <laughs> you know, that was the main reason we all got into it. So every, every free moment I had, I all, I've always ridden. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so for me, uh, you know, the older I got and uh, the, the further along I got in my career and started to get more free time, I spent that free time riding, so right. um, you know, like I said, I, I mean, I'm 55 now, so, you know, really a lot of people say, well, you shouldn't have been riding, but, you know, that, I think that's stupid, it's, it's what I enjoy doing and I was still able to do it, so uh You know, it was like I actually wrote a lot more. Uh, now, well, then, than I did when I was younger, even as a, a pro, a local pro, because you know I was working and trying to race as well. Right. Um, and now, you know, I have much more free time. I had more free time to to do what I wanted, and I chose to go riding.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> free time. So you know, it, it, it's what I chose to do. I can't look back and have any uh, regrets or anything.
1: Right. Uh, and, and I mean, also too. Like I mean, I imagine there was some pretty dark days after you got uh, after you got hurt. But like you told me earlier, I mean, you've done so much in your life. You know what I mean? That you can't if you just sit there and be bitter, it would just waste time.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, it's like uh, my whole life has been motocross and uh, everything I've, I've done professionally or, or in my my. Uh, my little racing career. I, you know, I, I'm happy. I've I've done what I wanted to do, and uh, in in my professional career, I've done more than I would have ever thought. So, uh, you know, from the standpoint of. Going oh wow my life's over it you know it, I've already done everything I wanted to do and more so you know I, I really don't have any regrets and I think well I'm for sure not giving up but mm-hmm. if, if this is it you know it's like if there are some uh, whatever uh, limitations I put on myself uh, there isn't some glaring goal that I haven't achieved so you know I'm i'm okay <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah
1: have you uh have you spoken with uh david bailey or ernie or uh you know any of those uh riders that you've worked with
0: previously? uh yeah i've been in communication with all of them and um we we talk and and share experiences and stuff like that but uh really uh the one big difference between us is that you know they got hurt and the, Right in the middle of their careers, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, I'm sure they had a lot of dark days and regrets and, 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 uh, you know, bad days. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on the other hand, it's like, uh, you know, I've done everything, and it's okay. like, Uh, You know, I did everything I want to do for sure. I miss the things I used to be able to do, but at the same time, I don't, you know, I don't have to sit there and go, you know, why me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, how's uh how's business been with you uh focusing on the uh for those who don't know ross uh ross Maeda owns um Enzo suspension and works closely with k y b how's business been since you've uh, since the accident and since you've been working on uh the rehab and getting better
0: well I'm very lucky in that i have a very uh, good staff um that you know is uh, that's loyal and very hard working and they're able to pretty much run the place without me, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's something that, you know, Will Decker and, and uh, Cosmos and, and Dave, they're all, you know, they were able to run the place without me because, quite frankly, <laughs> in, the, in the last few years, I, I've been out goofing around and, and enjoying some of my own freedom and free time. Um you know, I try to get I would come in for sure and, and do work and, and be involved in development and, and uh, racing and stuff, but uh, the basic running of the shop was was uh, pretty much taken care of. Uh, so I'm very lucky in that respect because with my injury, I mean, if if it was pivotal upon me being there or not, it would have gone out of business. But <laughs> for sure, everybody was, you know, it wasn't even so much that they had to... Completely step up to a new level with me gone because yeah. they were already operating at that level when I got hurt. So I'm very, very grateful for uh, you know the the
1: crew that i surrounded myself with. Right, All right, and uh, and I mean, I guess one drawback was if I had a bike, you'd have to source out springs for it. You know, only <laughs> only you could find those special springs that I had. But uh, hey, enough about that. Let's uh, let's get into your your career, your history. Um, where do I start? Let's let's try to – let's take it all the way back. Talk about getting into motocross. Talk about, as a young man, starting the race and what you did and where you were living and, and all that.
0: Well, I grew up in uh, Pasadena, mm-hmm. uh, California, which is kind of like uh, – <clears throat> Uh, below uh, we'll say probably kind of a little east of los angeles and i didn't really grow up in an area that you know i wasn't in a riverside corona area where i could ride out of my garage and stuff like that so um you know, my father would, would take me riding and racing. Uh, we basically started when I was 11. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, frankly, back then, motocross was um, almost just barely getting started in America. So right. most of the off-road dirt bike riding was done in the desert, and that's where I learned how to ride and everything. And. Um, you know, my father uh, discovered motocross and started taking us to do that, but I remember I have an older brother as well as a younger brother, Donnie. Uh, uh, he's three years older than me, and when we started racing motocross, I remember we, we were always kind of, weren't really joking, but we thought, man, you know, we'll never win a trophy in motocross. You you have to be badass. You have to get, like, top three. Because we had had actually raced a few desert races, and I actually got a trophy uh, in my first desert race for 172nd place. So, you know, that was something that was within my grasp. But when I started riding motocross, you know, we were like getting, you know, last. And and Mm -hmm. and really right in the back of the pack and and you had to be in the top three to get a trophy so we really thought that was something you know unattainable uh, (laughs) for us but um, like anything else you know I I really liked it so much I didn't even care if I was any good at it I just loved doing it and I stuck with it and um, you know we started doing better and better and and um I, you know I, 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 as I remember, I got uh, I earned a what was a local pro uh, pro license when I was fifteen, mm-hmm. which was a big deal because I didn't even have a driver's license yet or anything. and um you know, I just really, really enjoyed it. and so uh, when I was I was 16, I graduated high school, 17 years old, and we had met a a Japanese rider that was in America racing um, local motocross stuff, and um, we just kind of became friends with him, and he... He told me, he said, if you want to come race in Japan, you know, I'll, I have a shop in Japan, and I'll, yeah. I'll sponsor you. I'll give you a bike and everything. And so I was like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm going.
1: You're a factory so, rider. <laughs>
0: so, you know, it was like uh, I told my parents, you know, I wanted to go race in Japan. So I just I got a job at a uh, a motorcycle um, parts warehouse mm-hmm. called Sudco. It's still oh, yeah, it's still Sudco. around, right. Sudco International. And um, I I got a job there just working in the warehouse, which was was kind of funny because I always used to say that if uh, if I got a job unloading bricks out of a truck, I would have been miserable. Yeah. But if I was unloading motorcycle chain out of the back of my truck I would be happy because it had something to do with motorcycles so that that's what I did and I worked there for I think three years and uh well at first I just worked there one summer and Uh saved all my my money and um I had uh my mom would wouldn't let me spend any of the money that I won at local races. She used to take it away from me and and, uh, put it in the bank. Weren't
1: you pretty old at this point?
0: What's that? Weren't you
1: pretty old at this point?
0: No, no, no. This is when I was still 15. Oh, 15. Okay. And so... So, you know, from 15 to 17, I had accumulated some massive sum (laughs) in the bankers, at least enough to get a round trip ticket to Japan. Right. Um,. And I saved some money, so I left. And I remember it was basically the first time I left home for more than a week, Mm -hmm. which was Boy Scout camp or something. (laughs) And so my parents were really, you know, they're telling me, oh, you'll be back in a week. You'll be homesick and stuff. I ended up staying in Japan for... Uh, about two and a half months.
2: Really? Okay.
0: And, uh, racing just local stuff. And, mm-hmm. and it was funny because when I got there, they, um, they said, well, you don't have a professional license to race in Japan, mm-hmm. so you're going to have to ride Junior. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, that's like cheating. Yeah. But they, they said, you know, you're going to have to decide, all right, I'll do it. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to clean up. And and it poured rain at 90% of the races I went to. And, you know, it was like I was from Southern California. I didn't oh. want to ride in mud. And so, uh, for, you know, I got smoked <laughs> at a lot of the races, but usually when it was dry, you know, I, I could do pretty good and stuff, but I really didn't race that much, because I ended up crashing and getting hurt, and uh, I was actually kind of being shuffled around with a bunch of different people, so, Yeah. Um, you know, I. but the main thing was I... It was the first time I was away from home without my parents, so, you know, I kind of did a lot of growing up over there. I was hanging around with uh, motocross people, and it was amazing to me because I would just meet people at the races. And they'd be all, to come live at my house. You know, I'd be <laughs> yeah, like, you don't, you don't even know me, you know. But they were very, very friendly, and, and the Japanese people are just in general very kind. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I had a lot of fun, and I made a lot of good friends. But when I came back, um, you know, I was... I had started working at Sudco again,
1: and you were the fastest mud rider in Southern California. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know, it was funny because uh, for me, um, I at the time, you know, it was like to be a professional motocross rider, even locally, wasn't wasn't a viable alternative. Mm-hmm. You know, even the top. Local pro guys in my area, you know, like Gary Bailey was a a local pro back then, way back then, and he was, I heard, he worked at a grocery store as a checker or something. So. It wasn't something that was, you know, and and really working in the motorcycle industry wasn't something you really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But um, we were friends with uh, actually the mechanic of that Japanese rider that sponsored me in Japan, and he had gotten a job working at Suzuki in the race team. Mm-hmm. So he contacted me one day and said, uh, you want to be a... Factory mechanic for Suzuki, and I was uh-huh. like, "Yeah, I'll do that." You know, because he knew he had taught me most of my mechanical skills at that time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, you know, he, I said, "Well, I don't know anything." He was, "No, you're good enough." You know, <laughs> to be a factory mechanic. Hey,
1: that sounds cool. a lot like my conversation with Jim Perry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're good enough. <laughs> we'll keep an eye on you and stuff. So. yeah. yeah. And so uh, I thought, well, I'll do that. And then I kind of thought about doing it. And then he said, well, the thing is, though, you'll have to quit riding. And I was like, well, screw that. I don't, you know, don't want to quit riding. What, yeah. What's the point of getting a job in the industry if I can't ride? So I kind of uh, turned that job down. And then a short time later, he contacted me and uh, said KYB was uh, started an office in America, and they wanted kind of a test rider slash flunky Mm -hmm. working for him. So I said, well, I can do that. So um, they hired me, and it was basically just me and a Japanese engineer. And um, I, I think at the time, more or less, in Japan, everybody... Uh, they have a job and they uh that's what they do for the whole life right. you know they 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 just learn how to do their job and they do it mm-hmm. and they don't do anything else and and most of them uh, I won't say are, you know, uh, unable, but most of the people, that's all they do. So, when they, you know, I was working for them, and they they, they asked me, like, well, how much schooling do you have? And, you know, I had just had a little bit of junior college and stuff, so mm-hmm. they just, okay, he's a moron, and you know, they check that box, and <laughs> all they can do is ride. And then uh, they started to ask me, like, um, I remember they go, okay, uh, call up a welding shop and asked them to weld these two pieces of metal together Uh Uh and I and I said well that's all you need done they're like yeah and I said well I could do that They're like, you know how to weld and I was like well yeah Yeah. so then they thought wow you can ride and weld
1: he's not a moron
0: (laughs) yeah and and so then you know and then as time went on they asked me to do more and more things and and I was able to do it so they They thought they really hit the jackpot, you know. (laughs) I was this multi-talented guy, but I really wasn't. I just was an average motocross guy. I knew how to work on his bike, right? right. And uh, so, you know, I I really took an interest in. the mechanical end and you know what was inside the shocks and how they work and stuff so you know he thought wow I'll teach him so he he taught me uh, he kind of said I'll teach you uh the suspension, and you teach me English. So oh, yeah, huh? I, I used to stay after work and uh, just have English conversation with him, and and, and you know teach him new vocabulary and stuff like that. And he would. Show me he'd take fork shocks apart and forks apart and show me where the oil went and Uh stuff. So, you know, I I was really hungry for uh, knowledge, and and I'd just take anything apart I could and study it. So, for me, it it was a great time. You know, I was having a great time doing it. And, you know, at the time, I remember him asking me, What do you want to do? you know, what's your right. aspirations for your future? And I was like typical dumb kid, you know, I don't know.
1: I want to race. Uh, I, right.
0: you know, I want, to, want to ride motorcycles and and uh, do something in the motorcycle industry mm-hmm. and make a living, you know. So he was like, oh, okay, whatever. Mm. And, you know, so he. I just, I never dreamed at the time that I could make a, a, a career at it, you know, be an adult and, yeah. and be doing it, you know, because I didn't have any kind of college education or anything, but as time went on, you know, I just learned more and more, and, and uh, eventually they, they considered me an engineer, even though I didn't have any right. engineering education, formal education, but all of my experience was all um, just hands-on stuff. So, mm-hmm. and and for me, that was the best best way because I just imagine everything in physical terms. So, you know, I did that and uh, I worked there. At this point, I've I've worked at uh, KYB. I started in 1976. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, you know, I've, I've been there quite a while. I still uh have a uh, consultant contract with them because um after a few years, I started uh Enzo Racing just kind of on the side just for fun. And
1: When was that?
0: Pretty,
1: what year was that? You know,
0: I want to say it was probably about 1982. What? I would say it's right. when I started. Yeah. Well, when I started it, it was basically. Uh, doing stuff in my garage
1: I didn't, and, I didn't know that wow.
0: and uh, you know just at the time it was like revalving the shock the fork systems were basically internally a pipe with holes drilled in it right. stuff right. like that so mm-hmm. you know there were, tuning wise it was mostly just fundamental spring and and stuff like that but right. you know valving in, has evolved but shocks are really gas shocks are uh, are very, very similar to how they were from... From the you know original right. uh, gas shocks that were being used back in uh, you know 1976, is, mm-hmm. they were double shocks back then. But construction, yeah. design-wise, they weren't you know night and day different. Or anything. So you know it was uh, I, I was just basically doing stuff in my garage for my friends and stuff, and then it was like their friends and friends and other people just wanted me to mm-hmm. do stuff and I. Uh, uh, eventually, you know, made a company out of it, and um, the reason I, you know, people have asked me what where I got the name Enzo Racing is uh, in 1980. I uh, again, being you know, strictly a motocross person, uh, for I didn't take a vacation for probably like four years or something working there because right. I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And they finally, they said, well, why don't you take a vacation? So I I don't remember exactly why I decided to do it. But back, you know, when I was younger, Europeans were always better than us. Right. so. Um, you know everybody all the fat all the top riders in america aspired to go to europe and race and and race the world championships and everything like that and so uh i just decided i wanted to go to europe and watch some grand prix and right so i just kind of you know saved some money and then uh my roommate at the time said, "Yeah, you know, I'll go with you," and, and another friend of mine, and, and we all three of us, we just went, and uh, we kind of had a bit of a plan, <laughs> but it was it was in 1980. I went to Europe and. Uh, I remember probably the smartest thing we did was we uh we got a Eurail pass which is a yeah. kind of just a pass you can get to get on trains and we bought uh first class Eurail passes in America reserved and what that gave us was uh access to a Private car. Mm-hmm. So, and that car had like bathroom and a little shower and stuff. Right. So we didn't really plan it this way, but it was really good because we, you know, we would go to a country and horse around all day, and then at the end of the day, instead of getting a hotel, we would jump on the train and go to the next country. Yeah, and use it for a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, we we went to uh, England. France, Belgium, Austria, Germany. And
1: did you see see races in each of those places? Yeah.
0: Yeah. uh, I went to... I think we flew to England because it was the cheapest uh, theater round trip. And we went to... The first country we went to uh, travel to Austria to go see a, a 500 GP at Sittendorf. Oh, yeah. And um, that was... Uh, uh, at a track in Austria that it was it had snowed the night before and uh, it was it was a pretty big adventure and I remember I had worked with Decoster he was like my hero and um, by this time he, you know I'd been there four years and uh, He was on Hondas in his last season of racing, and um, did
1: you work with him when he came to America? Like, or what did you? Yeah, I,
0: I had worked with him. You know, as soon as I started working at KYB on Suzuki's,
1: so you were freaked out Uh, because you were like, "Holy crap, it's Roger DeCosta!"
0: Well, yeah, when I first went there, you know, when I first started working there, that was like I had gotten his autograph and stuff, (laughs) and so I, I I remember. Going to K Y B sent me to Suzuki, and they said, "Here, put take these factory Suzuki forks, go to Suzuki and put them on the Coster's practice bike." Uh-huh. And I was like, "What?" And, and, and they're like, "Just just go do it." So I I went to Suzuki, and and uh, you know I said, oh, "I'm here to put these forks on on his bike," and so. There was a, a, a guy there, actually my friend that was that mechanic that was working right. at Suzuki. his name's Aki Kodo, and he, he basically said, oh, here's his bike, and it was just a production, RM370. Mm-hmm. he goes, just, you know, put that front end on here, and it was a, a front fork and triple clamps. And so I go, oh, where's you know, the tools, and he, he goes in hey, here He uses this toolbox, and he brought this rusty old toolbox out, and I was petrified working on the bike, yeah. yeah. you know, so I was, like, trying to use all the right tools and everything, and and this toolbox didn't really have a lot in it, <laughs> so I was taking forever, and I was searching for everything, and I was looking for a, a, a socket and ratchet to take the uh, steering stem nut off, which uh-huh. is kind of big... Size and right. I searched. I couldn't find it, and and so Aki comes back there and goes, "You still haven't got that front end off yet?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm, I don't have this, you know, socket." Right. For this. Right. And he just goes, "Move!" And, and he reached in the toolbox and grabbed some pliers. and <laughs> just <laughs> started taking everything off with the pliers, and I was like horrified. But right. he just he just tore it apart real quick and. We threw it, that, you know, we threw it on, and you know, and then I got to eventually meet Roger and work with him, and you know, he was like my hero, and I was, you know, oh, I couldn't believe that I was actually working with him and stuff. But uh, a, f- a funny story that I have. That I told Roger eventually was, mm-hmm. uh, I was like a 125 pro then. And I rode a Suzuki, and we went testing one day. And for some reason, KYB wanted me to bring my own bike and test some some stuff. So I brought my bike, and uh, I was I was sponsored by a shop called Miller Mano back then, and he had put like a motoplatt ignition on my bike and did all this modify. You know, pretty extensive stuff, because that first year...
1: That's Dave Miller from DMC fame, right?
0: Yeah, 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 Dave Miller. And it was like the bike was a 76 RM125, and they weren't that fast that year. So, you know, he had to do a bunch of all kinds of modifications to it to get it to really run run well and mm-hmm. so at the end of the day after all was said and done my bike was loaded up in the back of my truck and Roger like goes and walks over to my truck, and he's, like, looking at my bike, so I went over to to, to chat with him, and, <laughs> and and I thought, you know, we're pals now, you right. know, I know Roger, and he's looking at my bike, and he goes, he goes, what is this pipe on your bike, and I go, oh, a friend of mine has a shop, modification shop, and he builds those pipes, mm-hmm. so, you know, he's, he built my bike, and he goes, did that pipe make any difference? And I said, well, just the pipe didn't make that much difference, but with the porting and the head and Mm -hmm. ignition, it made quite a bit of difference. And then he goes, so just the pipe, itself, you didn't feel any difference except in your wallet. And I was like, what? And he goes, that's what's wrong with you American kids. You just waste all your money on stupid little trinkets that don't make you go any faster instead of practicing and training and, and, and you know, maintain. And I was like... He just crushed you. <laughs> I was flabbergasted. And I'm like, wait a minute, he's cutting me down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, and he was my idol and it just broke my heart. And I remembered from that point I was like, he's a dick. I hate him. But, you know, I had to work with him, and, right. and so I still respected him and everything, but that really bummed me out, you know. I bet, yeah. I, th- I think, you know, everybody, well, if they have a hero, they automatically, uh, you know, assume, I, I love this guy, so he loved me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, here he was cutting me down, and I was like, oh, God, you know.
2: Uh-huh.
0: You know, I idolized this guy, and he just yeah. cut me down, you know. So. <laughs> and, I mean, it wasn't like I could go over hey, let's race, you know, I can say something like that, so, you know, but, you know, it was like, I I would only see him at the end of the GP GP season, when they would come to America to ride the Trans Am Series, so, you know, I didn't really, I would work with him here, and and even when he was here, it was just, you know, for a short time, Mm -hmm. so, when I went to Europe, you know, my friends are all, oh, you know Roger, right? And I go, well, I, yeah, I work with him, but yeah. you know what? I'll probably see him, and he won't even know who I am because, mm-hmm. you know, he he's like... You know, I only see Ross in America, so, you know, maybe he won't even recognize me. But as soon as I saw him, you know, he was all, what are you doing here? And yeah. and, and, and he was really nice to me and invited me to his shop. And and uh, we, we went to his home and everything like that. And oh, wow. I remember eating dinner with him and his wife and his huh. little ki You know, his two sons were just babies then. Yeah. And his wife was talking to me, and I said, you know, I, I really can't believe I'm eating dinner. <laughs> you know, I said Roger was my idol when I was a kid, and uh-huh. she'd laugh and say, "Yeah." You know, there's a lot of a lot of people like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, it, it's just things like that of being able to just being in the industry. I was able to just realize so many you know dreams that yeah. came true for me. So you know, it's like. You ever, you know, I can never say I got a bad hand in life. <laughs> I, I can never say that, you know. It's like I could, I could have terrible luck the rest of my life, and I'd still go, uh, I still had good luck more than I had bad
1: luck. Yeah, yeah. You ate dinner with, uh, with, uh, with Coster in Belgium when at the height of. Yeah. I mean, it's like me eating dinner with Timmy. It's amazing.
0: Well, that that that's even that whole dinner was even kind of a. A funnier story, because when I was traveling with my friends, um, we went to Roger's shop, mm-hmm. and uh, and he said, I'll come, come tomorrow, and, and we'll go to dinner. Right. And so we came the next day, and, and he wasn't there, and, and uh, his workers said, Roger called and said, sorry, he had to do something, so come back tomorrow. And it happened a couple days in a row. And uh, so I was going like, man, he's blowing us off. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we had gone out and, and done some stuff, and, and so we came back to uh, our hotel, which which was very close to the shop. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friends go, hey, let's go eat Chinese food at that Chinese restaurant. <laughs> I was like, I got real mad, and I go, we didn't come all the way to Belgium to eat Chinese food. You know, we're gonna eat Belgian food mm-hmm. or something. And I was. Kind of scolding on it. And so then uh, the, the next night I, I walked down. You know, they, they were coming, we were coming back and they're all, Can we eat Chinese food tonight? And I'm like, No. No. <laughs> and we're not eating Chinese food till we go back to California. And so I go, You guys stay in the room and I'm going to walk down to Roger's shop and see if he's going to meet us tonight. Mm-hmm. So I went back down to the shop and and uh, the worker said, Oh, he's not here, but we'll call him. So they called him on the phone. They go, Here, you know, he wants to talk to you.
1: The guy's here again. And yeah. so,
0: and so uh, I go, Hello. And he goes, Hey, Ross. He goes, uh, Where are you now? He goes, You're down at the shop. And I go, Yeah. And he goes, Okay, just stay there. I get washed up and I'll come down and we'll go to dinner. There's this really good Chinese restaurant by the <laughs> shop. <laughs> so I had to go back to the shop and go, oh, we're going to the Chinese hey, restaurant.
1: I only going because Roger said so. <laughs> it's
0: okay to eat Chinese food in Belgium because, you know, I wasn't hidden in there. I am going, why didn't you tell Roger you didn't come <laughs> all the way to Belgium to eat Chinese food? I didn't <laughs> not dare not. say that to my idol.
1: Of course not. No, there's no, way so you're working at kyb um and you you started it you've started enzo at this point what what kind of uh cool stuff were you doing were you going to all the races back in the 80s were you still just doing r&d for production bikes or what what kind of stuff were you doing back in the day for kyb
0: well, uh, again, you know, my, my job there was to work with uh, pre-production testing and working with each uh, manufacturer mm-hmm. that was, in fact, using KYB for production uh, to develop the production uh, settings and stuff. Right. And I also got to work with prototype stuff that was maybe at the time two or three years ahead of uh, mm-hmm. ever seeing production because at the time factory stuff was quite a bit ahead of production, and uh, uh, you know we we would go testing and do that kind of stuff as well. Okay. So it was really kind of a dream job for me in that I was I was involved in in uh, uh, you know racing mm. and uh, and and seeing you know the cutting edge latest stuff and yeah. and seeing you know the internal workings of how the race race teams work and everything like that so you know for me I was like in heaven
2: Mm -hmm.
0: just being in the the whole uh, uh, industry
1: Um, when was the first time you saw cartridge forks
0: yes um like when? actually Shoah had had been using a car you know a cartridge system mm-hmm. as far back as you know the early 80s oh I really, really? oh okay yeah oh. and uh
2: know
0: but it didn't work that well mm-hmm. because i remember i remember working with honda factory and Brian Lunas was a uh, mechanic working for I think Warren Reed or something and and I remember him telling me he said yeah I still, uh, insist on developing this cartridge fork but it doesn't work mm-hmm. and your fork works way better and and I said why do they keep you know trying to make that work and mm-hmm. he said he said well they say this is the, the future and this is the way mm-hmm. things should be and, which was true but you know at the time we we're all going what a bunch of dummies you know and, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah why don't they just stick with what works but you know eventually they got it right and that was uh you know the wave of the future
1: um so like the works Honda and works Cowie and all that in the mid 80s was were those cartridge forks before they came out on production bikes even KYB?
0: um no kyb was working with developing the you know, just the, the original at mm-hmm. conventional at the time, just what we call a damp rod fork, and and they had uh, done a lot of development and added different things to it that improved, you know, the way they yeah. worked and all. But but in the big picture, some of you know the cartridge fork at the time when we finally started working with it, you know, we we looked at it as, oh, this will never ever in a million years be production. <laughs> yeah yeah it's too it's too convoluted and, and you know sophisticated for the public so you know i it was fun to work with you know at the time it was like the equivalent of having a computer inside
2: yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
0: The, you know com- you know it's like let's see production is a pipe with holes drilled in it and this has little valves on it you know so right. it was it was quite a bit different and uh you know was super interesting for me
1: mm-hmm yeah, the uh, and so the other question is is when did you start seeing twin chamber forks? I know Showa came up with them first, but or I believe they did. But uh, when well, did you start seeing those things come on come on board?
0: The the, the thing was uh, the first the very first upside down fork that KYB made was I want to say right about when Bob Hanna came to suzuki so i want to say 1986
1: 86 is when he switched
0: 85 uh, or 86 86 and, and uh upside down forks were kind of the wave of the future at the time mm-hmm. and we were using uh a, we were developing a, a cartridge fork uh trying to play catch up to Showa, and um so then in the middle of that, they decided to make an upside-down fork and start trying to develop that. Mm-hmm. And I remember the very, very first upside-down fork that KYB made was actually a twin-chamber design. Oh, was it? And uh, I was like, what is this? You know, right, right. And, and uh, it didn't really work that well, as I remember. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was the the twin-chamber design that was holding it back. It was, it was more... Uh, structural problems with the fork but um we use that for a short while and then i think somebody kyb basically said uh this will never ever ever reproduce <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's let's stop wasting our time developing it right, right. and and uh In the meantime, I guess Shoa actually started working with it and developing it, you know, um, more and more and more Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where, you know, it is today. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't know really specifically uh, who has a patent on that particular design. I do know that KYB had it Mm -hmm. in, you know, like 1986, and I'm pretty sure... I didn't have anything like that. Maybe then I could be wrong, but
1: right. I, I don't for sure. When the switch to upside down forks happened, like in the late 80, late 80s, um, was it really necessary? Or like, do you do you think right now that you could make a conventional fork as good as what you're having, what you see on production bikes right now? Is upside down forks really necessary?
0: Well. Um... You know, everybody has their opinion, but my personal, professional opinion is that an upside-down fork's benefits is rigidity Mm -hmm. and control. uh, Riders a mechanical advantage over the front fork uh, front wheel. Um, You know, it's just rigidity and and just stability. Right. Um, The upside-down fork, uh, what it lacked in performance compared to the conventional fork was a conventional fork, uh, the point of flex is the inner tube because um, if, you, if you just think of it in physical terms, the axle to the bottom of the triple clamp is where a conventional fork flexes the most. Mm-hmm. A upside-down fork, is much more rigid at that point, so it does flex there, but it does more flexing, we'll say, in between the inner and outer tube. Right. So you, it doesn't nearly have as much... Uh, Leverage there, so you know it, it, it has. It's more rigid, right? But what what happened was, what it lacked in uh, uh, suspension performance, you know, rider comfort and whatever, it made up for it in rigidity and rider control. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say, can you make a conventional fork work as well? Well, <clears throat> I say, in it's you know, and its basic design, no, because I don't think a conventional fork can be made as rigid as an upside-down fork unless you do something structurally way different. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing is, when... Uh, Showa and KYD both were going back and forth when bikes were coming stock with upside downs, and some factories were racing with factory conventionals and stuff. Yeah. Basically, what, what the, the thing was is uh, the advantages of both systems were apparent as soon as you switched.
1: Yeah, yeah, but, right, right.
0: <laughs> but the thing is, the upside down fork made the front fork more rigid. And so, to me personally, it's like I believe you can go from flexible to rigid, but it's very hard to go from rigid to flexible. Uh, yeah. And I think, I think what happened a lot was uh, uh, the example I'll use is the Ronaldo Yamaha team back then. The bikes came stock with upside-down forks, and they were putting on an O'Lean's conventional fork. Mm-hmm. And I think initial testing, when they, they put the conventional fork on the bike, you know, the rides, oh, wow, these are really plush and comfortable right, right. because they have flexibility. Flex, yeah. But then they, they, they'd ride them at speed, and... Uh, one thing that I had learned when I was testing upside-down forks was, uh, I go, man, these things are harsh and they're they're rigid and they're kind of uncomfortable, but, man, they're really, really, you know, they're really yeah. secure.
1: You can really and, the front wheel somewhere, yeah.
0: Right, and so, like, I would go off a big jump and go, oh, no, I'm land in that big rut, mm-hmm. and I basically brace to crash. And I'd land and, and the bike would probably would go right over it, no problem. And I would go, wow, you know, these things are really good. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it took me a while to get used to it. So, you know, every time I would land in a hole or, or you know, in a real uh, situation that would twist the fork or something, I was bracing for crashing and I wouldn't crash. Well, pretty soon you get used to that. Yeah. And the reason why I was bracing for the crash was because if I had ups- if I had conventional forks on, I would have went over the handlebar. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you can't use the upside down fork. And you, you go off a jump with conventional fork, you know, and in this big hole, you're just like, oh, no baby. Yeah, yeah. And then you go over the bars, yeah. and you're like, what, what was that? You know, you, it's a mystery why you crashed. Right. You know, you don't, you don't realize that that's a, a, a bad point mm-hmm. of performance. So I think that's where, uh, I think a lot of, uh, development Groups and bike designers were kind of scratching their heads because you know they would go, these things work really good, but I mm-hmm. um, just woke up in the hospital. You know, <laughs> it was like I don't know what happened, right. and and so finally they just decided, especially with uh, all motor all teams in America using upside downs and supercross, that that was the direction that we had to go. Right. And, you know if, if there was a, a form of outdoor motocross that didn 't have big double jumps and whoops on an outdoor track, mm-hmm. you know the conventionals could very well still be the way to go but um, but you know modern moto, motocross track designers always put artificial obstacles
1: in it so yeah yeah the reason i the the question i I had an eighty nine Towie. Forty nine millis uh conventional forks and like there were upside down forks on Hondas and, and stuff that were just horrible. I mean I was mm-hmm. not a very good rider, but I'm like, what are these guys thinking? You know what I mean? Like those early upside downs, there were some models that felt they were, like they were yeah, driving they were terrible. spikes into your palms, you know?
0: Yeah, they were really they were really bad and that whole uh thing situation with kawasaki to stick with conventionals was mm-hmm. uh basically uh, you know it, i'm sure it's not secret now but yeah. uh, mike preston was the development test writer back then working with mike fisher and when kyb brought upside down forks to the you know the uh, mm-hmm. pre-production test he said no, these things are no good, and I don't want them. And <laughs> and he had uh, bump heads with the sales department and the big shots, and say no, I don't want them.
2: Yeah, and, really. Uh,
0: and so they, you know, they he had enough clout to make the call, and he he actually made a good decision. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that one particular year where they they. With the conventional fork, gave KYB and Show a one more year in development to improve the upside down.
1: Yeah, the uh, there was actually some photos released of that Cowie with upside down forks. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was like here it is. It's going to come with upside down forks. Oops, no, it's not. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, we
0: tested it. You know, it was all in pre-production testing, and I remember him saying, "I, I don't accept this <laughs> 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 unacceptable." <laughs>
1: <laughs> the Japanese guys are like Mike's on not liking upside down. Yeah, forks. yeah, and they, you
0: know. They they were fighting with him. He, to his credit, you know, he stood his ground and he was right.
1: Um, let's talk about a little bit about how manufacturers su- play the suspension switching game. You know, one year KYB, one year uh, Showa. Uh, Honda recently made a switch to all KYB. What and, and sometimes it'll be one model with KYB, one with Showa. How does that happen? What's the thought process behind that? Who decides that? Is it money related? You know, what what goes down with that? kind of stuff.
0: Um, the com- you know, like, for example, uh, Kawasaki uses Showa on the 250F, mm-hmm. KYB on the 450. Honda is the opposite. They use Showa on the 250F and KYB on the 450. Um, basically, it's always a, I won't say a political choice, but it's, it's uh, something I believe it's decided by the Um, production planning group where Mm -hmm. because every time they ever have something like that uh, at the beginning of a new model is it always becomes a contest like they'll contact show and they'll contact KYB and say okay we're gonna have a a test Mm -hmm. to decide which company gets the production contract and you go out and you just test 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 and and whatever they they decide where better that's what they go with and uh usually once they make that decision it it stands for i want to say at least two usually three or four years yeah Yeah. and um, until there's a big bottle change again and it's really i had heard uh that the background behind that is uh uh I'm not really sure about the makers or whatever, but I had heard, I think it was Toyota or something, had two vendors for headlights, mm-hmm. and um, these two vendors would would uh, compete with each other for price and performance, kind of the same as you and KYB, mm-hmm. and uh, trying to uh, you know get these production contracts, and then. Uh, Everything in Japan is done on when, when it's a production uh, line. They'll say, "Okay, Monday morning at eight o'clock sharp, we're going to start up, fire up the production line for this model, and it's going to run for you know X amount of days or whatever until we finish producing these models." Well, they it's like come eight thirty Monday morning when that thing fires up, they have all of pieces necessary to start building those those cars on the assembly line right? right. and sometimes it comes down to the wire like oh, they will deliver it Sunday night or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that you know they, it's not always way in advance and the story I heard was that this headlamp company uh, was going to deliver the stuff the day before production started mm-hmm. and there was a a huge accident in some big tunnel in Japan and cars crashed and caught on fire and it was just this big catastrophe and people got killed and and they had to shut down this tunnel right and they couldn't deliver the headlights and so it, it threw off the production and it it backfire you know there were so many repercussions from them not finishing the production line that the company lost a tremendous amount of money Mm -hmm. so they decided you know we have to we have to use more than one vendor right and So an emergency like that we could go, you know, hey, Brand X, can you do (laughs) can you get some headlights down here tomorrow and they go, Yeah. And you know, it was something like that and so it kind of changed all the Japanese companies
1: way of thinking
0: uh, operating procedure. Yeah, their way of thinking and they so they said we need to be friendly with all the vendors and you know, to be friendly with them, you have to use them right. from time to time. So that's right.
1: why they kind of spread it out. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm always uh, always interested uh, to know that kind of stuff. It's a bit of a mystery sometimes. Um, now, without without talking about any uh, current models, or you can if you want. But is there one <laughs> is there one bike one bike that you remember as just being like horrid suspension that you made? you know, like you really made your name with Enzo racing like that. You really did a ton of fixes to, was there just a bike that was just horrible?
0: Um, you know, I've always said to, to, to development people and customers and everything is if a bike is really horrible, it's usually a combination of things. And generally speaking, can't be fixed with just one thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, if the bike has horrible suspension, unless it's something like a dramatically bad production setting or something like that, mm. you can't make a horrible bike into the best bike. Yeah. yeah. It's very, very difficult. And, uh,. You know, I've never pretended to say, oh, I'm a magician, and I turned this horrible bike into a great bike, you know, because there was one bike in particular, um, I think it was 86, and uh, really bad luck for Bob Hanna when he, he signed on to to work and race for Suzuki. Mm-hmm. That was uh they had this horrible uh, rotary well, It was an eccentric link. It was like a um, kind of a, a, a rotating uh, the link was worked off of kind of a rotating ball uh, around okay. slug and it, it was just really had a lot of friction. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. but that particular year the AMA had decided no more works bikes yeah. everything has to be production based so if you had some horrible uh, you know feature on your bike if it was tied in with the production rule you couldn't change it you were stuck with it Right. and, and uh, in their case the weak link of that bike was this linkage system and they couldn't change it and so uh, I remember that bike just being really horrible, and they only used that system for one year.
1: I'm sure it Bob, I'm sure Bob never really shared his opinion with you at all, right? On that,
0: <laughs> oh, no, he was. You know, that was another funny story that I always had was that I worked with Bob um, that year, and he had he had always kind of traditionally ridden the Florida series right at, in early January, and you know, it was like that was Christmas and New Year's, so you know everyone wanted to be home. And, right. And Bob would say, "You guys aren't serious. You know, you got to get down here Christmas Eve." <laughs> and, and you know, and so I had had to go to Florida to work with him. And uh, I remember we were testing in Florida at Croom. Right. And, uh, today, yeah. Yeah, this is really rough sand track, and, and we would be testing something, and and uh, I'd be standing on the side of the track, and he'd ride by, and I'd make an adjustment or something, and he'd, he'd ride, and the thing would swap and he'd almost die or something, and he would come in, and he would just scream at me, you know, like, and you'd just get so mad, and I'd be all settled down, you know, and and then uh, we'd... Uh, he'd ride back to the hotel, uh-huh. which was just uh-huh. on the uh-huh. other uh-huh. side. Right. And then we'd jump in our rental car and drive back. And then I'd go, man, he's hot, you yeah. know, talk with the mechanics. And then we'd get back, and he would be pretty calm. Mm-hmm. And so then, like, we'd go out and test something again, and he'd start screaming at me <laughs> again. And we'd come back, and and he'd calm down. Right. And so I was joking with his mechanic. I go, you know what? I think Hannah rides, when he rides, he's just angry or, you know, super aggressive. Right. And I said, let's just send him out there and not go out to the track next time. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I made a shock and I said, go try it. I'm going to make some notes and come back and tell us how it is. And he comes back and he's, you know, and he's not yelling at me. And he uh-huh. goes, and I go, how's that? And he goes, nah, that's just as bad. It's actually a little bit worse. Mm-hmm. But he was, he was calm. He wasn't screaming at me or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so. I told his mechanic, I said, you know what? He, I'm right. You know, he, he's angry when he rides the bike. And, yeah. And when he comes back, he's he's all mad, you know, but if he has time to cool off on that ride back to the hotel. Right. You know, he, he's not all pissed. So I said, let's not go out there no more. <laughs> and and so then this one test, Hannah goes, I want you to come out and watch me go through this one section and tell me what the bike's doing. Right. And I'm like, no, just go out and ride. He said, no, I want you to see. So we went back in the rental car and, and, uh, We're watching him, (laughs) and he hits this bump and does this big swap and then just, like, holds the throttle wide open, just starts riding over to us. And I go, let's go, back!" We started the car, and we were running away. (laughs) He was chasing us down that road, and we flew back into the hotel. And sure enough, when he got there, he wasn't. He, he was, wasn't mad.
1: He was calm.
0: Yeah, and I later, years later, I I I would kid him about that, and he's like, "No, no," but yeah, we saw it in practice. <laughs> it yeah. was true. I,
1: I like your story that you've told me a few times about Van Der Van in Florida, and uh, I, you know, yeah, it,
0: that was that <laughs> trip.
1: Yeah, Dutch sand specialist, and uh, and a local Florida race, and Hannah giving it his all to beat this dude. <laughs> yeah,
0: he he. Uh, you know, he goes, we were there, I think it was St. Petersburg or something, and, mm-hmm. and, and Hannah was like a hero in Florida. Everybody liked him. And, and uh, you know, we showed up there, and Hannah was the fastest guy if, if Vander Van wasn't there. But yeah. during practice, you know, I kind of cruised over the side of the track, and I see this guy in a KTM just, like, ripping around the track. And I'm like, who is that? You know, and then, I you know, I had kept track of European stuff, so I go, that looks like Kay's Van, but What would he be doing at the Florida Series? Yeah. And then, sure enough, it was him. And then I saw him, and then and Bob goes, "Who's that joker on the KTM?" <laughs> and I go, "That that's the world champ." You know, he was—I want to say he was 125 world champion that year or something. But right. I go, "That that's you, you know K okay, And he's like a Dutch guy; he's super fast in the sand. And he goes, "Yeah, he's fast, you know." And mm-hmm. and I was just thinking, like, "Oh, this is just great," you know. We're we're here, and and Bob's gonna get smoked by some European guy. Yeah. On a KTM that none of the, you know, locals will go, Mm -hmm. who's that guy on the Harley beating Hannah, you know, and and I thought, you know, and and he's just going to look terrible getting beat by someone they don't even know who he is on some weird bike. And so you know, the first moto went off, and Hannah. I thought Hannah was always getting lousy starts, so I thought, you well, know, maybe he'll get a lousy start, and Vander Van a whole shot, yeah. And and you know, and, and he'll get second, and people will go, well, he, you know, yeah. Didn't get the Bob start. got beat because he didn't get a good start, and Bob gets the whole shot, and I'm like, well, <laughs> great. And so Vander Van reels him in, and just they start scrapping, and he. uh vandervan beat him in the first moto but hannah was going for it and making a race out of it and and almost crashing and so after the first moto i i told bob i said you know what don't break both your legs you know if this bike isn't the way you like it don't ride over your head and hurt yourself you know and and he was like, "Oh no, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta go for it, 'cause he was gonna whoop me." And I was like, "That's a stupid reason to you <laughs> know, put your life on the line." And and then the the, the second moto, you know, I I I just kind of got to know Bob more from working with him that year. But he had already, you know, made his name. He, he was a legend already by then. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you know, it was like. Ooh, we we're on the starting line, and I was thinking, okay, the track's twice as rough as the first moto, <laughs> Yeah. so the bike's really going to be horrible, and Bob's going to be pissed, and he's going to get beat by Vanderlin. And right. I remember between motos, I said to Bob, "I go, you know, do you want to, what do you want to change on it?" Because you know, he came in and gave me a shopping list of what was wrong, yeah. <laughs> and what the bike was doing bad. So I go, well. What you I know, mean? you want me to. You know what? You know, you want you want me to change. And, and uh, he just thought about it. and He goes, ah just leave it. I'll write it." <laughs> and I, I was like, "You just told me the thing's unwriteable." And right. you know. And he said, ah, you "Well, know, there's nothing you can do." So the <laughs> second moto, he he actually beat him. He likes you know. And the thing that was funny was we were on the starting line and. uh We're sitting there, and Vandervan's like a couple over on Mm -hmm. to us, and, and Bob kind of is looking at his bike and everything, and then he just turns over to me, and he says... If that guy wants to beat me this moto, he better be ready to crash because I'm willing to go down hard. (laughs) And I thought, whoa, you know. And I remember thinking, like, you're not
1: dealing with a sane guy at this
0: point. Yeah. Well, uh, the thing that impressed me most was, I think most people talk crap in the pits, you know, an hour before the race and and everything. And here he's gates ready to go down, and he's making these bold statements. And I thought, God, this this guy's a hero. You know, yeah, yeah. In, in real life and in, in that moto he beat him I mean he like smoked him I couldn't believe it and so that was really you know a, a fun you know I won't say it was rewarding because I take no credit because the bike was horrible yeah. you know I was doing whatever I could but uh, you know Bob was a fair guy and I think he, I earned his respect in those days because I was always trying, you know, to help him. I wasn't going, yeah, well, it's a piece of crap or something I can do. So just riding. I was always trying to
1: help. So. You, were, you weren't all man up rider you know you're just a pussy or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: you know I, I would have never said that to him but, <laughs> but he was saying that to me that you know I'm got, I gotta do it you know I gotta ride the bike so yeah, you know it was I was really impressed with him and, right, right. and uh, it was pretty late in his career for me to be impressed with him but mm-hmm. it, to me it was a bigger tribute to you know what kind of person he was.
1: Right. Uh, this year at the Indy Deal show, um, I got a chance to look at that 86 RM250 that with the Boysen link that Bob raced at uh-huh. um, And I talked a little bit to the designer about it and, you know, obviously Boysen had patented it and he had said that, the you know, the OEMs were very interested in that system but they didn't want to pay Mr. Boysen the money, you know, to patent his system. Is that like chain torque, getting rid of chain torque? And I know Amp came up with something that I used to run on my CR500, my dad made me. Is that the right direction to go was that amp was that boys and link really um, you know the right way to go but just too many moving parts as uh, as I, as i was kind of told
0: well it's i think my, again you know my it's just i'm going to say it's my personal opinion mm-hmm. because someone could easily prove me wrong but my whole uh, opinion of that that system and the anti-torque deal is that yes when uh motor power is delivered to the rear wheel by way of a chain the rear suspension does in fact get stiffer
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh when when the throttle's on and the chain torque is is pulling Uh, but that's something that is just inherent in the design. Mm -hmm. Uh, The boys in Link and the the Amp Link and stuff eliminated it or or lessened it or something like that. Mm -hmm. But my whole take on the thing is, yes, it does allow the suspension to work better under power like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, the other thing is riding technique has developed – to uh, work around that, I won't say work around it yeah. as much as use it to your advantage. Right? Um, if you're going to land in a big hole, you're going off a big jump, and you're going to land in a big hole. Do you hold the throttle wide open or do you shut it off? You, you hold it wide open because it makes the st- suspension stiffer. Now, in, in the case of uh, a system that eliminates that chain torque, you could hold it wide open and it's, you bottle. Know, bottom. Right. You know, or... or uh, You know, the engine power may help you, but in as far as the the chain torque making the suspension stiffer, it isn't there. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, it's as simple as things like wheel tapping loops or or seat bouncing and gassing it. Those are all utilizing the chain torque characteristic. In your favor. Yeah, to the in rider. Right, right. Right, in a rider. So that was the thing is when I tested the system was I go, wow, it does this really well, but it does this way worse.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, it, 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 and even Bob told me the same thing. He said, you have to ride this system and nothing else and get used to it. Right, right. You know, and I, I believe possibly if one of the OEs came out the system, and the bike was a success, and then all the others followed suit. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, probably riding technique would be different. Right, right. Because, you know, we would all have to change the way we rode to compensate for that. Right. right. And I'm not saying one way was better than the other, but at the time, That's I it. think there were too many stubborn riders going, you know, I needed to do that. Screw it. Take it off.
1: Right. Right. Well um hey so you, you I mean so Decoster Hannah Johnson Bailey Stewart McGrath Tim Ferry you've worked with legends uh what has there been a rider that's just really taken your breath away or really done things that you couldn't believe at the time
0: well for me um and I don't really think that my uh, opinion or thinking is swayed just because it was so long ago and he was my idol. But Roger was kind of a complete rider in that. He, he, uh, he was a very good test rider and development rider, very knowledgeable and could tell you what things were doing as well as give you suggestions on direction to go, as well as being a top Competitor, right? Usually, in my experience, you'll you'll get these these guys that are just super fast. They're kind of like race horses. Mm-hmm. You know, you just you just whip them and they go and they win. <laughs> right. They do they do whatever it takes to win. Right. Uh, I remember working at Cowie um, with Jeff Ward and Ron Machine mm-hmm. and everyone kind of thought ronnie was kind of a goof off and stuff but machine was actually a very very good test rider um it was because he his riding style was like he trusted the bike every time he rode it the example i use is like you know everyone's had a day when they go riding and the tracks perfect. And you just go out, and from the first lap, you're just holding it wide open, and you can't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And you just you feel great, and everything's working great. And then you go out the next day, or even the second moto, and you can't do anything right.
2: right. And you're
0: going, well, what's wrong? What went wrong? Okay. Well, I think a big part of the, the when you're riding good is you're riding good because you're trusting the bike, mm-hmm. and you just you just lay it over and you, you trust it not to wash out. Right. And right. you just get on the gas and everything works. But when you're not sure of yourself and you you just kind of hesitate that one second, it does wash and it does, you know, do all kinds of things wrong, and you can't, you know, and then it frustrates you, and, and then you hesitate even more, and it throws your timing off, and you can't do anything right. Right. The team rode, for, trusted the bike all the time, and that's why he used to have like really funny beginner-type crashes all the time. You know, he would just come flying into the first turn, and the front end would wash out. He'd do a faceplant, and everyone would laugh and go, "Did you see that beginner crashing?" But it was because he always trusted the bike, right? Right. Uh, and because he rode like that. When the bike wasn't right, he knew it, and he, would, he wouldn't he would be able to articulate it very well, but, you know, <laughs> but you knew, knew it wasn't was wrong, right.
1: right. If, yeah, he knew something was wrong. You
0: know, if, if he wasn't riding good, you knew there was something off. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Ward, on the other hand, who was a much more consistent performer, uh, he would like ride and come in, and i go, what's it doing? He goes, oh, it's... It's, it's kicking or it's bottoming in that hole over there. And I go, okay, and I'd say is it, you know, does it feel like it's it's going down too mm-hmm. deep at any bottoming? And I'd ask him some question and I'd make an adjustment and then he'd come in and I'd go, how is it now? And he goes, mm-hmm. no, it's good. Right. And I go, how is it in that section? Is it still bottoming? And he goes, no. I'm taking a different line. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, then we don't know if what yeah. I did fixed it or not, right, you know. Right. But see, that's how he wrote. If he'd go, if I go there, it does something I don't like. Mm-hmm. So I'll just do something different so it doesn't bother me no more. He didn't, you know, wait for it to... Yeah. You know, for me to fix it, he fixed it himself. Right, right. And, right. and the, the beauty of a, a rider like that is you can put him in a race situation... And he will figure it out, and he, he'll he make it work.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas uh, uh, there's other guys that are just too technical, and they'll go, oh, it's bottoming in that hole, mm-hmm. and I can't win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then yeah. they'll just throw in the towel. They won't think of if I move over two inches, I won't bottom or something. Oh. But Rod, Roger was more, you know, he was kind of the complete package. and And after him, I didn't really see many guys that were like that. And I always used to think it was because the European riders weren't on top anymore, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's like a lot of the guys that I worked with were good because... They were very talented riders and other ones were just really had a personality quirk that, you know, they wouldn't accept defeat. <laughs>
1: right, right. Well, um, I've always kind of admired you. I've worked with you a few times, a few different teams. Uh, I've admired it because as a as a former mechanic, you know, and we're gonna get talking about what what get touching on what we were just talking about, there's There's the rider that wakes up in the morning on the wrong side of the bed and the suspension's terrible and there's not a whole lot you can do about it and consequently there's other days where the rider is on it and you know you don't and you don't need to change that much but you were never a guy to like be like oh i have the magic fix don't worry like sometimes you were just like yeah it's the rider but you know we're gonna try to make it better you know what i mean but there's there's suspension people out there that are like i am the magic i can make anything work and i don't believe that you know i truly don't believe that it's
0: it's, uh... Uh, that's that's my feeling. Is I've always told people that I said if you ever meet a, a suspension guy or a motor guy or or a, you know any tuner that mm-hmm. says I can do it all, I'm you know right. I, you tell me what's wrong, I'll fix it. I mean, if he, he has that's his claim to fame, then just run away <laughs> and run for your life because yeah, you know it, 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 it's it's the rider. I mean, that's it's like the Motocross is still, you know, the numbers change all the time, but it was when I was growing up, it was 90% rider, 10% machine. Right. right. And all of us that are working on the bikes and industry, we're basically doing 10%. (laughs)
2: Right. Yeah.
0: You know what I mean? And if you get riders that are super equal, all that, you know. That five percent we screwed up could make mm-hmm. be the difference. Right, but right. you know, like even Hannah, you know, he used to he used to get calipers and he had this little jig he would put on the handlebar mount for adjusting his bars, like down to like the millimeter. Right. And I go, what are you doing? You know, he goes, I made this jig so we can get the bars in the perfect position. Yeah. Every time. And you know, he would he would ride and he would come in and go raise the preload, one
2: millimeter.
0: Yeah. I raised the the sag one. I go, what? You know, you you could bounce up and down on it, and it'll change three millimeters, you know, depending on where you're sitting. And, you know, he was so particular, and then I used to give him a hard time, because I go, you go to all that trouble. And then you fall in the first turn, and the bars are the shape of a pretzel, and you pick the thing up, and you catch everybody, and you win.
1: Yeah. Yeah, really. So really.
0: How important is that where you're mounting those handlebars? Yeah. You know, but he, he, he just laughed. He, um, he kept doing
1: it. Was there one rider that uh, was your favorite, has been your favorite? Like, just a guy, like a good tester, a, a guy that you just gelled with, a friendly guy on and off the track. I mean, was there somebody, I guess for you, there's got to be a Bunch, but is there one that sticks out? That of a guy that just you really like? I think
0: I think one of the guys that I learned a lot working with him, and uh, I got along with him per- personality-wise as well was Eric Kehoe. Oh yeah, he he's a super good guy. Yeah, yeah, very good. very intelligent. Mm-hmm. Which I kind of thought would work against him mm-hmm. overall because you know he. He he was a little too intelligent, you know, right. and like he, he would, you know, when he's racing, you kind of have to, I'm not saying you have to be a dummy, but you almost have to have this ability to shut, you know, certain parts of your brain off to like, say, that guy behind me has won 30 championships yeah. and I haven't won one. Right. right, There's no way I can beat him. You know, you have to just kind of be, oh, I'm just going to do everything right. Well, who's behind you?
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, and I, I felt Eric's intelligence and intellect worked against him in that regard.
1: Mm-hmm. But, uh, but as far as a uh, testing and being a good guy and and all that, it would. Was, was, yeah,
0: he was very good. very, very accurate and honest. And I always always told test writers that I worked with, I said the most important thing for you to do is to be honest, mm-hmm. because you know. If you can't feel anything, tell me, mm-hmm. because that in itself is going to tell me that maybe what I did didn't make enough difference. Right. But don't just try to say what you think I want you to hear, because yeah. then none of us will gain anything from
1: that. A lot of times Timmy would tell me, hey, my my bars fell off, and I'd be like, I don't want to hear that. I want you to be honest. Yeah. You know? <laughs> But, uh,
0: <laughs> don't sugarcoat it. Huh?
1: Yeah, yeah, don't sugarcoat it, man. Um, <laughs> hey, how'd you come up with the name Enzo? Anyways, that,
0: that, uh, yeah, that was a. I lost track of my story. When I went to Europe in 1980, mm-hmm. uh, when I was actually in Austria, I I met this Italian guy that was basically the same age as me, and uh, he he was watching me working with some people and, and he approached me and says, oh, you work for KYB? And I go, yeah, mm-hmm. in America. And we kind of started talking and he actually had made his own shock. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really impressed, you know, that this guy was like my age and yeah. as much as I'd learned at that point, you know, um, I never dreamed ever make my own shock mm-hmm. or anything. And and so, you know, as as time went on, as I learned later, it was much easier to make a component in in Europe back then because there was a whole cottage industry that was selling, like, shafts and
2: yeah. piston and
0: stuff where you couldn't just go to the hardware store here and buy a shock piston. Mm-hmm. But in, in Europe, you know, you could go to this vendor or something and he'd have 10 different car shock pistons or something like that right. so you know it, it, it was much easier for him but I, nonetheless i was incredibly impressed with it and and just in that day of hanging around and talking with him we became friends and and uh, he i went to france the french gp after that and he met me there and then once i got home we we started corresponding mm-hmm. um, by mail, and he would ask me for different things, and I would try to send them to him. And eventually he came to, I invited him to come to America, and he lived with me for about, I want to say six or eight months, mm-hmm. and uh, we used to just... Uh, Play with suspension, and, and it was really funny because he, when he came, he 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 built me a set of shocks to to use, and I was like all excited, and they worked really bad. <laughs> And, you know, it kind of was a disappointment, but it didn't, it still didn't uh, Uh uh, sway how I felt about him, you know, the respect that I had for him and and stuff like that. And we we worked quite a bit, and I learned quite a bit working with him because whereas to that point I was working with existing components and trying to figure out how to make them work better, he was building things from scratch and figuring out how to make them work So that. That really opened my eyes and helped me kind of uh, expand my you know mm-hmm. my my way of thinking and stuff like that but his name his name was enzo so uh, at the time i didn't realize uh ferrari's first name was enzo and yeah i was gonna I say thought, i thought that name sounded kind of funny and mm-hmm. so it I just, I liked it. And so that's what I ended up calling my company.
1: Oh, that's funny. Do you still keep in touch with them?
0: No, that's really a funny thing, too. I had uh, uh, an Italian magazine had gotten in touch with me and said, we want to do a little interview with you. So they they came to my shop and we had a little interview and mm-hmm. they asked me, how did you get the name, blah, blah, blah. And I, I told them the story. And then, uh, about God, about two months after the magazine came out, I got this letter in the mail, and it was one of those old airmail letters uh-huh, up, yeah that's like the real thin paper and stuff. Uh-huh. And that's how Enzo used to write to me, and uh, I'm looking at it, and the handwriting was the same and I'm like this is from Enzo and I opened the letter up and it was in Italian huh. and I'm like did that idiot forget that I can't speak Italian and and so I folded it up and put it in my wallet and just kind of held on to it. figuring You'll run somebody. That- yeah. And eventually, I ran into a guy, a person that could speak Italian, and I said, "Hey, hey can you, you know read this and translate it for me?" And he he read it, and he goes, "Do you know what this says?" And I go, "No." Yeah. And he says, "This is from your friend's mother, Enzo's mother," and she said, "He says Enzo died."
1: Oh no way!
0: He had like a brain aneurysm or something, and he had died. And she said uh, when he was dying, he had told her, you know, I don't know what my, what was the word he used? It was like, my, you know, what my... Uh, legacy oh, in life no. gonna be or something like uh, that.
2: Uh-huh. And,
0: and you know, and so she said, you know, he died and then I think it was like a year after he died, one of her friends called her and said, There's this article in this magazine huh? talking about your son and there's some guy in America that named this shop after your son. Oh no way. How so funny is that? He wrote me this letter and, you know, basically told me, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, thank you for doing that and good wow. luck and blah, blah, blah. But, um, I was going to go visit her last time I was in Italy, but I, I kind of couldn't find her. Right, right. But, oh. uh, you know, that was kind of an interesting side note to the whole thing.
1: Yeah, really, huh? You're like, oops. Like The guy the guy who's translating it for you is like uh, looking at you, and you're smiling and nodding. And, yeah, like, what's it say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The guy's like, uh, sorry to, to do this to you. <laughs> yeah. Well yeah, hey. Yeah. Uh, will you do another one of these with me down the road somewhere? We got yeah, sure we got more to cover for sure. I know I kept you longer than I thought. So, um I uh, really enjoy talking to you Ross. Always a pleasure and uh I remember picking your brain about being a mechanic and, like, you know, what I want to be a factory guy, and you were telling me some stuff, and, like...
0: I was telling you, don't waste your time getting into journalism. Yeah. In the that's where yeah. the big
1: bucks That's left. That's where all the money is. Look at Donnie. Look how rich Donnie is. He, he can afford himself a whole bunch of Takati three-wheelers right now. Uh but, uh, no, great. Thank you for coming on the BTOsports.com. Uh, it's my, my pleasure. Transworld Podcast, and I will see you around, right? Okay. Talk to you later. All right. See you, Ross. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. This has been the BTOsports.com podcast show brought to you by Transworld Motocross. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends, such as... The Beast from the
0: East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home. And once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take the money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. It was definitely an emotional moment for me, just... Thinking to myself, that's it, you know. And it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that you know that I was
1: going to miss. The daughter, Machine. Until you really open your
0: ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, it's like beating a dead horse. And you know, and I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course, did. everybody did. Pro Circuits, Mitch Payton. There's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven time, Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I pulled
1: the and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day
0: for not just riding around in tents. been no problem. My, my ego got in the way, you know? Leo Show, Johnny Omar. Stuff that. You could—you sit there if you didn't even want to ride it. You just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. I like that air I was in. I really do.
1: Search Mathis on the iTunes Store to find these and many more great podcasts.
0: I won't let this die. You know I've got to better pain.